0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi,
1: I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now, your next presentation with Canva Presentations.
0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 12 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman
2: talks with Jonathan Adler about how his pottery defined his aesthetic. I yes, they're about craft and luxury mixed with a sense of optimism and cheekiness. Here's Debbie Milman.
1: Jonathan Adler has a few design rules. Follow your heart. Ignore any rules. Wear white after Labor Day. Have a fuck it attitude. His rules have served him well. He started as a potter, then got interested in textiles and lighting. It wasn't long before his artistic fingerprints were on restaurants and hotels and homes featuring his gorgeous throw pillows and chandeliers. His mission is to bring modern American glamor to everyone's life, everywhere. He's opened more than 30 stores bearing his name, and he's written books on practically every aspect of design. And in case you're wondering, he does indeed wear white all year long. Jonathan Adler, welcome to Design Matters.
2: Thank you. I am so happy to be here. I am a longtime fan, so
1: thank, thank you. you, thank you, Jonathan. You grew up in a tiny farm town called Bridgeton in southern New Jersey. Your great grandparents moved there as egg farmers at the turn of the last century. Does your family still have an egg business?
2: <laughs> um, no, the, my great grandparents moved there at the turn of the last century, and. My grandfather grew up there and was a local judge, and my dad grew up there, and it was truly rural. My dad had gone to the University of Chicago during this incredibly interesting renegade time when, like, Mike Nichols and Elaine May were there, and he was, like, a very intellectual dude. My mom was living in New York, working at Vogue. They got married, and then my dad was like, all right, let's head back to my hometown where they had a Green Acres relationship, and I grew up in a completely rural environment, albeit not a particularly picturesque one, and it gave me a lot of time to sort of fester and dream and have a normal childhood-ish. Ish. Ish. I love that word. Such a good word. Yeah,
1: Your dad was a lawyer who spent, from what I understand, every second of his life painting and sculpting. You've said he had a great sense of design and was quite chic and minimalist. Conversely, your mother was quite interested in fashion. As you said, she wrote for Vogue and had a much more colorful sense of style. I read that you stated as much as you would like to claim that you are fabulously original, you are 100% a product of your parents.
2: Yeah, I have no complaints. Absolutely zero complaints about my parents. Unfortunately, my dad kicked the bucket like 18 years ago, which is very sad. And then my mom now lives in New York, as does the rest of my family. And as much as my brother and sister might complain about my parents, I am like, I'm good.
1: I saw a fabulous photo of your mom, I believe, in a La Chapelle
2: oh, photo yeah. <laughs> shoot.
1: Is that true? Is that, true? Yeah, is that so accurate?
2: My first was potting and kind of starting a business, which sounds grander than what happened. Details Magazine did a story in which David LaChapelle traveled the country and photographed seven or eight young design people with their parents in their house. He did like Chip Kid and Rob Zombie and moi. And I actually was not out to my parents at that point. And having David LaChapelle and a crew of like 20 New York fashion folk coming to my hometown, really actually was the catalyst for me to come out to my parents.
1: Really? Yeah. So so you did it during the photo shoot or after? The day before,
2: I was like, "Uh uh-oh. Like, you know, New York is about to collide with my life. And I sat them down. And unfortunately, this was still during the AIDS crisis. And I think that was why I hadn't come out, because it was a very different time. And I thought, all right, yeah, I got to come out. And so I did. So that photograph is sort of emotionally resonant for moi and kind of great and is not really an accurate depiction of my parents. But anyone who's listening should look it up because it's a cool picture.
1: You grew up very culturally Jewish. You went to Hebrew school and got bar mitzvah. I understand that you wore a Brook Brothers suit to your bar mitzvah, which I read gives you a great deal of melancholy. Why? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I did wear a Brooks Brothers suit. And, you know, it was during the disco era that I was bar mitzvahed and somehow I I sort of went against the grain and thought, oh, I should be a little bit more conservative and classic and timeless. And I look back at that period and I just think, like, why didn't I go for it? Why wasn't I more over the top? Why didn't I embrace the lunacy of that cultural moment? So, you know, anybody who says disco sucks missed out on the party.
1: Absolutely. In your book, My Prescription for Antidepressant Living, you wrote about how the year before your bar mitzvah, you attended Maury Stein's bar mitzvah, which had an El Al airline theme. How on earth did they pull that off?
2: (laughs) Um, Well, bar mitzvahs in the 70s, tended to be themed. And Maurice Barmitzva, all of the men in his family wore purple velvet suits, and they were stewardesses instead of waitresses. And probably the most noteworthy thing about Mari is that his dad was a podiatrist, and they had a pool shaped like a foot. So I kind of am jealous of Maurice's childhood. I'm very jealous of my next-door neighbor, Andrew Goldstein's childhood, because his mother was probably the chicest person I've ever met, Mrs. Goldstein. She had a brilliantly eclectic and poppy house. And Andrew Goldstein had a fully, fully decorated boys room. Like boys' room 76, red, white, and blue. And my parents had dropped the ball when it came to decorating my room because I was the third. They were just like whatever. I basically just slept in a crib or a cardboard box and was (laughs) completely untended. But Andrew Goldstein had like stars and stripes and red, white, and blue. And I think that uh, his boys' room and Maurice Strauss's foot-shaped pool both made a big impression.
1: You stated that this particular experience taught you that you should always dress in an excessively trendy way so that you can look back on pictures of yourself and realize that you were fully engaged with the culture of the time.
2: Yeah, well, as we speak, Debbie, yes. I you can see I am currently riding the Gucci wave. <laughs> I'm um rocking a Gucci belt.
1: Yes, you are. A Gucci
2: sweater and it's having a real moment and um Yeah, I'm like riding the wave, and I don't know how long it'll last, but I'm loving every second.
1: Your sweater has either bees or flies on Um, it.
2: I think bees and stars. And
1: And I noticed that Dior is also using a lot of bees this season. I wonder why there's this insect sort of trend that's happening. To be
2: honest, I actually don't think one can ever figure out why anything is happening anymore. I think life has gotten so random. I feel like trends and design things used to... um, Things used to bubble up organically, and now I think we live in such a fast-paced world of design. And in fashion, people always try to make sense of fashion, try to put it into a cultural context. Um, I read, like, New York Times fashion reviews in which they try to ascribe political motives to fashion designers' choices. But as someone who's in the business of making stuff, I understand what drives fashion, which is basically these designers have to do, like, 12 deliveries a year. They need to have, you know eight new styles or whatever. And so they're just like, oh, we'll do insects this time, stripes next time. It's kind of random. And it's a a strange and liberating time to be a designer.
1: One thing that I've always wondered about, though, is how do the designers seem to coordinate some of the similarities that we see from collection to collection?
2: I don't think they do. Really? Well, I think... All right, so there are some innovators. I would say Gucci, uh, that dude did innovate with some embellishments. And then that happened to be a moment that triggered something in culture and fashion and embellishment caught on. But in general, I feel like those trend ideas are not really true. I think that we live in an era in which trends all exist simultaneously. Every skirt length is acceptable. The only place I feel things are truly, truly, truly coordinated is in Japan. Where I go to Japan a few times a year, I find it so inspiring. And I'm always struck when I go into every high street shop just how similar the merch is. And that's a place where I spend a lot of time thinking to myself, who is issuing the imperial edict that this season is only about navy and white stripes? Who said that every collar must be spread? Japan's the only place I feel that fashion homogeneity.
1: You discovered your love of pottery at summer camp when you were 12 years old. But I read that you originally went to summer camp because of your athletic prowess, which uh-huh. I was very impressed by, Jonathan. Thank you. What made you decide to take a pottery class? Keeping it
2: 100 P real, the pottery teacher was hot. <laughs> um, I was a 12-year-old with a massive crush on this pottery teacher, and I took his class and then that was that. I Between was you and the pottery teacher or are you and the pottery? <laughs> Me and pottery. <laughs> as much as I'm, I'm not a spiritual person, I'm really not a spiritual person. But I really felt a strong connection to clay. The very first second I took it, it became sort of a passion and a refuge and a lifelong obsession. And it was just on from that very moment
1: you ended up spending the entire summer in the camp pottery studio in a clay-spattered Rush concert t-shirt. <laughs> Let's discuss
2: this. So again, keeping it 100% real, I think I might have been lying when I said that, I think. And this is actually germane to your branding world where sometimes I think that I studied semiotics in college yes. and sometimes I think that there are certain cultural signifiers that Just you need to embellish your stories with them to really to communicate something. And something about a Rush concert tee really grounds me in a time and place. And even though I didn't actually have a Rush concert tee, it was the spirit of the Rush concert tee that captures where I was at in my head.
1: Who were you really listening to back then? I was envisioning Elton John.
2: Um, No, I actually had a – my best friend had this cache of – Weird hippy dippy records from his stoner aunt from the late sixties. So I was very like um, Country Joe and the Fish, wow, and the Fugs. It was yeah, I was having a moment.
1: Seriously, like, yeah, props. and I think that's
2: thank you. And that hippy dippy ethos is quite authentic to me. Yes, it is. Oddly, because the sort of Gucci clad white-jeaned dude you see before you today doesn't probably appear to be very hippy-dippy, but I kind of am.
1: Well, now it makes sense that one of your first pottery creations was a bong.
2: Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. I've. You know, it's funny. I, Whilst I did smoke pot in my youth, I am really not a particularly hedonistic person. I'm very clean living. But a lot of my work seems to deal with, like, counterculture iconography and drug iconography. And it's probably my work is much more risque than I am. And I've thought a lot about why that is. And when I design something, I try to just sort of follow my heart and not think too much. And I'm consistently drawn to hedonistic iconography. And I think that it's a vicarious thrill. Like I think that I've, I've not had a hedonistic life, but I sort of express... Hedonism through my work. I like to bring in cultural signifiers that just resonate, even if it's not in a particularly explicit way. Like I just did a uh, piece of wall art that's beaded that's an homage to drugs. And there's like LSD and shrooms and poppers. And poppers. Valley of the Dolls. Valley of the Dolls. Poppers are, you know, poppers have a real cultural significance, I think, to like the gay community. They were like this 70s gay Drug and whilst I've never done a popper in my life, there's something about the um, the resonance of them that tingles my chakras, and I try to sort of let my design id loose and not really rein it in. So drugs. How old were you when you
1: first read the great Jacqueline Suzanne novel that we both? adore and cherish. <laughs> I have a first edition, by the way. Oh,
2: love it. So Actually, there's a new edition that just came out, and my husband wrote the intro, and it's great. He wrote the foreword. It's fabulous. Um, I read it in high school. I had kind of a camp sensibility without really knowing why or what it was, but I used to stay home from school and watch Mommy Dearest whenever it was on HBO. And I read Valley of the Dolls. And in a very, very, very strange early camp gesture, I actually read Donald Trump's The Art of the Deal because I thought it was hilarious. When I was in high school, it came out. and I was like, look at this. It's all about gold. And I thought it was really funny. (laughs) Little realizing.
1: So you thought it was more ironic? Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Even then I was- um, If only that were the case. I know. (laughs) But um, I'm a blend of irony and sincerity, as I think all people should be.
1: What made you decide to study semiotics at Brown?
2: I was a wildly impractical person. My parents never – they never gave us any advice. I think the only the only lesson they ever taught us was to try never to say anything banal. And even that was not explicit. It was sort of just understood that that was the one thing one should strive for in life, to try to not be banal. So when I went to college – It wasn't like my dad sat me down and said plastics or, you know, you must study engineering because that's practical. So I was just like, I'll study semiotics and art history because that's what interests me, which, as it turns out, was a terrible idea. But it all worked
1: out. Well, I actually can see how understanding language and symbols and vernacular is embedded in so much of what you do. So
2: as it turns out, it is. And it proved to be quite practical for me. But I guess... If I were giving advice to young people today, I would probably advise them to be much more focused and career-minded because it's a different time and place.
1: While you were at Brown, you spent most of your time at the nearby Rhode Island School of Design making pottery, and you made Chanel-inspired teapots and updated takes on various kinds of urns. And it was then that you experienced one of the biggest and most defining moments of your life one of your professors i think a woman named janet rice is that correct
2: um, it's actually jackie, rice, jackie and rice i feel so guilty because well anyway finish and then i'll tell you well, what well she guilty.
1: she ended up giving you some i think unsolicited advice that was there's not even a word for it i would just say unprecedented and as an educator i can't even imagine somebody saying something like this to a student but i've heard these kinds of stories time and time again especially 20 or 30 years ago. So for any of our listeners that might not be aware, can you share this story?
2: Yeah, the story story you're alluding to is that after college, I spent a year at RISD making pots. And then I decided, you know, I think I really want to make a go of this and get an MFA. And I went to my teacher, Jackie Rice, and I said, I've been here a year. I think this is my calling. I want to get an MFA. And she just said, no, it's not your calling. You're not talented. You need to give it up. Which, as a grown-up, I find odd. But on the other hand, I suppose schools can only take a certain number of people. Whatevs. I feel guilty because I've been sort of mean to Jackie Rice for many years when, in fact, in my heart of hearts, I'm quite grateful to her because ultimately one shouldn't get any approval from anybody. And I'm sort of – I'm very glad I didn't get an MFA. I think that would have been a disaster for me. I know you have students here. I think that academic art and design has a very particular vocabulary and ethos and approach that I don't really like. That whole sort of crit model where people design stuff and critics come in and talk about it, it's very, very cerebral and very unintuitive. And I'm sort of innately cerebral. I I think had I studied something and grounded myself in a a world of cerebralism, it would have been constipating. And I'm very glad to have been homegrown to not really have any experience or understanding of what I was embarking on when I started making pots. And I think had I been in grad school, I would have been on a particular track that would have been bad for me.
1: But it shows incredible resilience and sense of self to actually have pursued it anyway without a sense. And it, and you did take a pause because your first job was not as a potter. But for those that might be listening that have heard some significant advice that suggests that you should not pursue something that is deeply embedded in your heart, I would use Jonathan Adler as an example and try it anyway.
2: That's very nice. Um, yeah, my journey was definitely odd. I did always want to be a potter. I realized it was not a practical thing. And so I tried to work in the movie business, which was kind of trendy at the time. Luckily, I was a terrible employee. I kept getting (laughs) fired. I slept with every (laughs) single person in the office. I was absolutely unemployable. So I found myself at 26, unemployed. My dad was paying all my bills. And I just started to make pots just to have something to do while I figured out what my next chapter was. And eventually my parents said to me, we're not going to pay your bills forever. What are you going to do? And so I called up a buyer at Barney's and I got an order.
1: Okay, let's break that down a little bit, because it wasn't quite as simple as that. So from your mid to late 20s, you worked as a production potter. You would get up at 6 a.m., go to your studio, make 100 mugs, then come home and fall asleep. You repeated this routine seven days a week for three years. And I've said that while trapped behind the wheel, you dreamed of all the things that you hoped to do. And it was only then that you called Barney's and got your first order. Is that
2: correct? No. Oh ah, con- it's au wrong. contraire, mon au contraire. Frere. Um, the, the Barneys thing is the start. So I was teaching night classes at a pottery studio in Hell's Kitchen called Mud, Mud Sweat and, sweat and, and tears. tears. And in exchange for teaching night classes, they allowed me to use the studio during the day. So I had no plan, no money, and it was only when my parents said, "All right, you know, we're pulling the plug. not." They weren't going to pull the plug. They're very nice, but. Um, they said, do something. That's when I called the buyer at Barney's and I got an order and I made the order even though I had no idea what I was doing. For someone who's, I suppose, part of the elite you know, by today's standards, I was surprisingly outsidery. I really had no commercial experience. I had very little professional experience because I failed at every professional endeavor. So. When I got this order from Barney's, I thought, "Okay, I guess I just have to make these pots." I had no idea what I was doing. Made the pots, didn't even submit an invoice because I didn't know what that was. And then I figured it out. And I mean, it's
1: quite amazing that the first and only place you called gave you an order, or did you call other places and get rejected?
2: No, Barney's. That
1: was it. That Barney's, was it. And, yeah. and 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 Barney's, Barney's and then... has a particular sort of to it. <laughs> yeah,
2: it does. Is that well, why? The other place that um, gave me an order, or actually a show, was this place called Arrow Studios that is still very much around, but at the time it happened to be the trendiest, grooviest gallery come interior design studio on earth. And as it turns out, I had known one of the principals at Arrow, Bill Sofield, just from sort of my social life. He knew me as, like, a movie assistant. And I bumped into him at Balducci's, and he said, so what are you up to? I hadn't seen him in a year. And I was like, um, I'm teaching night classes at Mud, Sweat, and Tears. And he's like, I didn't know you were a potter. And I was like, yeah, you should see my stuff. And he saw it and loved it and gave me a show. So suddenly I found myself from being this total outsider to being represented essentially at the two chicest emporiums of luxury on the planet and— I didn't really understand what that meant or what was involved, and it just sort of happened.
1: So that's when you then started to go to your studio, get up at 6 a.m., and make all of the mugs.
2: Yes. I moved from mud, Sweat & Tears to this kind of hippy-dippy pottery co-op in Soho called Downtown Potters Hall, where there were six other potters, and they kind of showed me the ropes of how to run a cottage industry. And I would just rollerblade to the studio— make all my mugs and rollerblade home and go to sleep. And something in my soul and my mind switched, and I went from being an unemployable fuck-up to a completely committed, work-obsessed animal.
1: Do you have any sense of what it was that switched in you, or was it just being madly in love with what you were doing?
2: I know exactly what it was. It was a sense of sheer panic. It was the... (laughs) It was... It came from having failed several times and starting to think like, whoa, I'm 27, I'm unemployed, I'm broke, I have no prospects, I'm a complete failure, and suddenly I have one little opportunity. I need to maximize this bitch. So I figured, all right, the one resource I have is myself, um, so I better use it.
1: You produced everything on your own for years. You were literally making every single piece yourself. How did you manage to grow your business while doing it all on your own?
2: I figured it out. I started to get like an employee to help me pack and ship. And then somebody helped me paint some pots. And I had built up this cottage industry where I was selling to several stores, sort of kind of cobbling together a living and – I was also really physically exhausted. It's very, very physical labor being a potter. I was like really – I was in great shape, but I was exhausted. And I remember talking to my husband and saying like, is this it? Am I just doing this forever? And he's like, you got to get some help. You need somebody to help make stuff. And it was pre-globalization. There was no resources. There was no interweb. It's recent and yet so different. It was probably 97. And I didn't even know where to begin, but I found this organization called Aid to Artisans. And they were a USAID-funded organization that helped artisans in the developing world. And just by pure chance and kismet, they said, go to Peru. There's a factory there. And I didn't even know where Peru was, but I got on the next plane.
1: And it is there where you discovered South American textiles and you started designing pillows and throws and rugs. How different was designing textiles in comparison to pottery at that point for you?
2: Yeah, so Peru. I went to Peru. I fell in love with the country. I got myself out from behind the potter's wheel and had finally had a chance to dream a little bit and think and not just do. And I did discover Peruvian textiles and sketch some on the back of a napkin. And it felt totally organic to me for some unknown reason. And yeah.
1: You said that you're the most scatterbrained, impractical, carefree craftsperson ever to walk the face of the earth, and somehow you managed to make it. And as you were talking, I had an epiphany. You talked about how exhausted you were. I don't think anybody could make it as anything unless they're willing to be exhausted most of the time when they're starting out.
2: Yeah, I think being exhausted was great for me, and being panicked was the very best thing for me. I think that resilience is the key to everything. I do, too. Like, I've been through some serious shit over the years. I've really been through some stuff on a business level, everything from burning down a studio space that was in a big office building to frivolous lawsuits that were very costly. I've just been through a lot of stuff, but I don't have any options. You know, being an unemployable person, my attitude has always been, all right, well, that happened. I got to work it out.
1: Well, despite your self-description of unemployable, you opened your first store in Soho in 1998. Today, your work is available in 30 stores and over 1,000 retailers. Your designs span myriad categories from the tiniest pots to the swankiest sofas and sparkliest chandeliers. And your motto is now, if your heirs won't fight over it, we won't make it. What do you make of this success, Jonathan?
2: I have a really exciting and great design life. I make anything and everything that pops into my head. People like you buy it. And I appreciate (laughs) that very much. Anybody who actually spends their hard-earned chuckles on my stuff is really near and dear to my heart. So thank you. And, yeah, I make it all.
1: You've said that what you try to do is very craft-oriented and not that brainy, but you try to bring a bit of brain to it as you want everything to be smart. And that sensibility seems to be deeply embedded in all of your work. There is an unmistakable wit and cheekiness to all things Jonathan Adler. So you mentioned the word brand before. It, you know brand in many ways is a construct and it is the result of positioning sound strategic positioning and yet it seems as if the Jonathan Adler brand was sort of fully born with the first pots and I'm curious about that
2: it is funny that we're sitting here in this branding program and studio because everything's a brand I'm a brand you're a brand he's a brand she's a brand we're all brands 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 but when I started, that word didn't exist except for like Kellogg's. You know, like <laughs> right. Kellogg's was a brand; nothing else was a brand. I'd never that word didn't exist. And I'll never forget, my husband Simon and I were chatting one day, and he said, "Oh, my friend, who's the editor at Details, um, said that everybody at Condé Nast needs to read this book on branding." And I was like, "What's that?" And he's like, "I don't know. It's this new idea."
1: What book and was it?
2: I <laughs> can't remember. It was like your brand you or something. It was, some... uh, it was
1: probably uh, Tom Peters, a brand called you. Absolutely. Maybe. Yep.
2: Yeah. And we were both like, oh, that's silly. And then we kept eating our Kellogg cereal. Um, little realizing that that concept of branding was going to take over our world in a somewhat positive and largely negative way, I would argue. Mm-hmm. I think it's led to... A lot of people taking themselves too seriously. I think it's led to people not letting things happen organically. The idea that everyone and everything can be a brand seems custom-made for the social media age when people are brands. But I, don't know. See, I have a
1: real issue with people being brands. I think your business is a brand, but I think that people are humans and they have souls and DNA in their Hopefully, changing quite a lot
2: every well, day. It's so funny. My sister mockingly says that her brother has been replaced by a brand. <laughs> um, <laughs> where? Gosh. No, I'm into it. I'm fine with it. It's like the old human me was not as great as the brand. No, I agree with you. Of course, I think it's silly that everyone tries to define their own brand. It's like a, it's a terrible way to approach life, and I think it's very anti-creative. And I'm gonna get a bit heady here, but. One of the things I'm very glad I didn't do was pursue a fine art career. I'm very glad that I work in applied arts because I actually think that branding has been a part of the fine art world forever without people knowing it. Oh, absolutely. Like fine artists basically choose a style or a brand and then just replicate it forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So they do little variations on it, but – ultimately their work becomes a commodity and they need to stay within the confines of whatever their art brand is so that people can buy it and show their commodity signifier or whatever. And being in the applied arts, the stakes are not as high as in fine art. You know, in fine art, if you're a successful branded painter, you can make millions of dollars for a painting. Whereas in the applied arts, the stakes are low. You know, I might make a lamp and whatever. So I feel like had I gone into fine arts, which was in play, I probably would have been much more creatively constipated and more focused on that idea of branding, whereas in my life now as an applied artist, I feel like I have nothing to lose, the stakes are relatively low, and I'm extremely experimental and open-minded. I guess the thing that's relevant to the idea of branding is that I think branding can be very antithetical to creativity.
1: I think it depends on whether or not you're considering your brand while in the state of making something. So if you are thinking about the result, if you're thinking about how well is this going to sell, how well is my audience going to understand or appreciate this, then you're limiting yourself. But if you think of somebody really committed to having created some of the most breakthrough work in the music industry, for example, somebody like Joni Mitchell, who never thought about how her work was going to be received and only did work that she felt moved her and her audiences could appreciate it or not. Yeah. I think that when you start thinking about how the world is going to receive the work, then you're going to be bound by that work. That's really dangerous for anyone.
2: I totally agree. And I think as a designer, as a creative person, I have to be very careful to not be too too analytical or deductive in the way I design and make stuff because it's very easy to fall prey to a deductive approach, you yeah. know, to, to the person in planning saying we need you to do an embellished sweater. You know, I think that's what happens in the fashion world. And music is something that I think is really interesting, bringing up Joni Mitchell, because I think music is something you really can't be too deductive about. I feel like melody is magic. I feel like you can decode a lot of stuff in any creative endeavor. You can look at it and say, oh, I see what the reference is for that. I understand how they got the meter for this, the blah, blah, blah. But melody to me seems to come from up above. Yes, I agree. Um, and it,
1: it's baffling to me. I would so much like to be able to figure that one out. You yeah. Can't. It does seem as if your brand though was fully formed. There seems to be a really consistent soul to it. A wit, a cheekiness, a sort of nod to the kitsch, a nod to certain California glamour. Mm -hmm. Where does that all come from?
2: I have a very, very, very wise little husband, Simon Doonan, who is a genius. And he did all the windows for Barneys, and he's a writer, and we've been together forever. And one day he said to me, so you're making these pots, like— What's next? And I was like, I don't know. And he said, well, what do you think they're about? What do you think the pots are saying? And I was like, oh, that's a good question. I I guess they're about craft and luxury mixed with a sense of optimism and cheekiness. And that understanding of what my work was about rather than just making it, that was a seminal moment for me because it made me think, huh, I guess that ethos can be applied to myriad stuff, which I've done. So that's kind of a brandy moment.
1: I read an anecdote about you that I think really personifies your style or your brand. I read about how a famous-ish magazine editor once put you down for rollerblading, and your response was to skate home and never give it another thought. And then you went on to describe how a snotty socialite once told you that having a Japanese maple in your garden was suburban. So you went out and got two more. (laughs) Yeah. And there's this sort of cheekiness and this attitude of sort of fuck you, I'm me. How do you brush off that criticism or negativity or judgment or editing and sort of just produce what you produce and be who you are?
2: First of all, those issues. I'm very anti-snobism. I hate snobism. It's <laughs> I'm a generally very, very positive and accepting person. Probably one of the only things I'm negative about is snobism. Um, I recognize that to be creative, you really need to let yourself go, and in that moment of creativity, try not to think about what people think. And my husband calls me Ariana Kafka. He says that I'm half buoyant, glib pop star like Ariana Grande, you know, where I'm just sort of like I have this sort of freedom and frothiness and then half Franz Kafka, brooding, analytical, self-critical and dark. And I think that that combination has served me really well.
1: Let's talk about some of your design ethos. You've stated that the strangest thing you've designed is probably a giant lucite nose. (laughs) What gave you the sense that anyone would be interested in a giant Lucite nose?
2: Well, interestingly, people haven't been that interested (laughs) in it, actually. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's funny you say that because literally I was in a meeting this morning with a team of planners and buyers because I have a proper business now and I'm kind of a business dude. And the Lucite nose came up. And people said, you know, all our lucite objets are doing really well, whether it's a giant lucite foot or a hand. But for some reason, the nose has been a complete dud. And I thought, oh, well, all right, it happens next.
1: Was the foot inspired by Maury Stein's father? (laughs)
2: Perhaps. (laughs) The the analysis is on. Um, (laughs) No, so the nose is a dud, but you never know. Has having this empire
1: now change the way you design or the way you approach your work?
2: If you were to come to my studio slash office, which we call the Fantasy Factory, which is like a cheeky allusion to Warhol's Factory, it's a strange combination of real serious varsity people who are having planning meetings and operational meetings. And schlepping furniture all over the world is a really complicated operation. So we're very serious in that regard. But I think the creative core of my company is still pretty freaky.
1: You've declared that every room needs an anchor and a star. What do you mean?
2: In my own oeuvre, the anchor is classicism and rigor and elegance. So I think we've been talking and I'm I'm fairly cheeky about my life and career, but I'm actually a super rigorous dude and very connoisseurial and design obsessed and I think that everything I do I hope has a baseline of elegance and so when you talk about the anchor I think that that's the anchor of what I do. It's like I want everything to feel very classical and timeless so that's the anchor really. As for the star yeah I think everything needs a soup of zhush and I strive to make work that has like an anchor of elegance and a sparkle of personality, a real raison d'etre.
1: I understand you want to design a car, but you want to do one that doesn't look like molded sneakers. And I never really thought of cars looking like molded sneakers before. How would you envision your car?
2: Um, I would like to have a car that has a lot more sharp angles like cars used to have. I know aerodynamics and fuel efficiency and blah, 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 blah. But... Car design is a bummer um, and it's quite sad to me. And whilst I do my best for the environment and try to be extremely responsible in what I do, I'm often startled by how students today are more obsessed with social issues than design. Like design students will often say, oh, yeah, this is this thing I designed and it's great because it's recyclable and blah, blah, blah. And I'll look at it and think – That's great, but you ignored aesthetics. And I think car design today is a victim of that problem.
1: It's interesting because I think there's a lot of categories that try to be responsible and whether it be um, toilet paper that's recycled instead of the soft bleachy stuff that we can get at any supermarket. The, the issue with these alternatives, where they fail, is in that they don't have an aesthetic that is appealing. Yeah. And if there are the marketers out there can do both, it's much more likely to be successful. Yeah. Um, Jonathan, in addition to your retail business, you also do quite a lot of interior design work for many high-profile commercial and residential projects. And you've said that interior design is a service business And your team has to address clients' needs and handle them like a psychiatrist. I would imagine that your retail business is very similar in a way that you have to really understand the mind of your audience. But in what way do you have to be a psychiatrist with these sort of big, high-profile commercial and residential projects?
2: I think that an interior designer needs to get to know his client, get to know a space, and try to understand who they are in a way that perhaps they don't understand themselves. And then I try to sort of get to the nugget of who they are and then create a space that channels them at their ultimate best, at their pinnacle of eccentric glamour and a space that encaptures their best selves.
1: How do you discover that? How do you find that best self?
2: I think one just has to like ask them about themselves and push them to be bolder, than they think they want to be. That's the problem, I guess, in design is most people don't want to uh, really sparkle. But Why? It, Why is that? I don't know. There's It's that horrible, like, norm coreization of the world where people want to be, I don't know, hide their light under a bushel. But we're only here for a limited time. you got to, like, sparkle.
1: You've been talking about your husband over the course of this interview, and I'd like to talk about your relationship. You made your first sale at Barney's, and started dating Barney's creative director, Simon Doonan. So can you talk about how you first met? Was it
2: love at first sight? So I always knew who Simon was. Of course. Yeah. He was kind of this legendary, legendary Those windows on 7th Avenue when Barney's was
1: downtown. I mean, it still is now, but the the old one.
2: Yeah. He's quite brilliant. And I would see him, my heart would flutter a bit, and I'd be like, oh, that's a bit of all right. And then I started selling my pots at Barney's, and about a year after I had been selling my pots, a, mutual, a friend said, "Oh, I want to set you up on a date with this guy. I think you'd like Simon Doonan. And I thought, "Oh God, no! It'll be, you know he's like all fancy and famous." And at the time, I was a clay spattered rollerblading potter wearing a rush t-shirt, wearing <laughs> wearing a sort of metaphorical rush t-shirt. <laughs> um, and that was that. Twenty-two that was that. years ago,
1: in two thousand and eight. You and Simon Got Married, and in the foreword he wrote in your book, My Prescription for Antidepressant Living, he states the following. In a world where it has become wildly uncheek to speak in mushy and enthusiastic terms about one significant other, and where most couples seem intent on divorcing and or murdering each other, Jonathan and I are something of an anomaly. We don't really have very much in common. He's a Jew. I'm not. (laughs) He eats meat. I prefer seaweed. I'm middle-aged. He's not. I like highbrow, pretentious European movies, and he would rather watch The Terminator. So, Jonathan, I'd like to ask you the question Simon poses to the reader. What is the source of the cosmic fairy dust which keeps you in each other's thrall?
2: Wow. I think Simon was having like a moment of profundity that... totally inaccurate. We're just, <laughs> we're basically the same person. We, we're just extraordinarily compatible. We have a very shared sensibility. And it was just on.
1: Well, do you know what he said? Do you know what he said the answer was? What? to Keeping each other in each other's thrall. Tell me. Your decor.
2: Oh, see? He was see? delivering a strong forward. <laughs> he said
1: that the entire house is your design and he just lives there.
2: Well, that is kind of true. But... Um, <laughs> yeah he rolls with it he he what he did in his visual career as a window dresser is quite ephemeral you know you put something in to a window it stays there for two weeks it's paper mache it's sort of all front and no back it's like for effect it's a temporary installation whereas what I do I make stuff that I hope will be around forever so whilst we're both visual, we have very different skills and What we do is quite different. So he surrenders the interior design to moi and um, comes home to a new sofa every day. Poor thing.
1: (laughs) Poor thing. I feel so sorry for him.
2: No, you should because it's – sometimes it's a – you know, I constantly am anti-maiming our apartment because it's part of my process. And some of the anti-maim iterations are less good than others.
1: Well, just as an aside about Simon – Back in the 80s, when he was doing the windows on the Seventh Avenue Barney's downtown, I actually passed Barney's every day on my walk to work. And I was trying at that time in my life, is somewhat embarrassing, but I feel like you'll understand it, to model my life after his windows.
2: That is so incredible. <laughs> wow. Yes. I can tell the Christmas that.
1: windows, especially. And there was one year where he did this just phenomenal set of windows that were bedrooms and boudoirs and sort of dressing areas. And that's the way I wanted my life to look. So there you have it. Ephemeral, but not really. Ephemeral, but not really. So the last thing I want to ask you about is your official company manifesto. On JonathanAdler.com, you have published what I think, is the best manifesto for any business I've ever read anywhere. And Jonathan, I think it's so good. I use it as a best-in-class example for my clients and my students that I'm sharing about how to best express what the values and the vision and the mission of a company is. So I was wondering if, to close out the show, you would mind reading your manifesto for us.
2: Um, I would love to, and I'll just tell you a, one minute about how the Please. manifesto came oh, to be. yes, yes. Because it was when I was early in my biz and— I remember Simon and I were out to dinner and I was like, I need something for my biz, just like something to put on the walls and of my store because I I don't know, I need something. And he's like, well, all right, what? And I said, I don't know, maybe a manifesto. Um, and he said, all right, well, what? And I said, I guess we believe your home should make you happy. And he's like, OK, good. What else? And then I was like, I guess we believe that minimalism is a bummer. And he's like, OK, that's good. What else? And then I started to write them down at dinner, and between the appetizer and the main course, I wrote a manifesto that I think captures both real hardcore design stuff and life stuff, and it was a really good moment and proved to be an incredibly influential document, Yes, and it's been copied squillions of times, and I'm always very flattered. But it happened quite accidentally in a very non-graduate um, student branding environment. Good.
1: <laughs> That's the way it should happen. Mm-hmm. Would you read it Oh, yes, us? I'll read it.
2: All right. <clears throat> Our Manifesto. We believe that your home should make you happy. We believe that when it comes to decorating, the wife is always right, unless the husband is gay. We believe in carbohydrates and to hell with the puffy consequences, which I don't really believe. Um, <laughs> I do. <laughs> we, we believe minimalism is a bummer. We believe in our muses, David Hicks, Alexander Girard, Bonnie Cashin, Hans Koper, Gio Ponti, Andy Warhol, Leroy Neiman, Yves Saint Laurent, and Madonna. We believe in being underdressed or overdressed always. We believe colors can't clash. We believe dogs should be allowed in stores and restaurants. We believe celebrities should pay full price. Truth. We believe our lighting will make you look younger and thinner. We believe in highbrow books and lowbrow music. We believe in the three L's, layer, layer, layer. We believe subversive is superior. We believe in irreverent luxury.
1: Jonathan Adler, thank you so much for that gift of a manifesto and just an ethos for living. Thank you for being on Design Matters today and thank you for making the world an infinitely more elegant
2: place. Thank you. It's an honor. I am a fan. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you.
1: Thank you. To check out Jonathan Adler's work, go to one of his stores or check out jonathanadler.com. This is the 12th year I've been doing Design Matters and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.